1 Peter with a doctrinal parenthesis. We have been studying the verse-by-verse, passage-by-passage, phrase-by-phrase sometimes, as is my custom. And we will continue doing that in the weeks to come. And I'm going to stop here kind of in the midst of a thought by Peter to really encapsulate a, a doctrine. And even though I have referenced it multiple times uh, throughout these first verses, it is necessary sometimes, I believe, to set back and focus just on that doctrine and why it is so necessary for us to develop it, not only in our understanding of God's Word, but in our living of God's Word, that we put this into practice. We have seen that based upon a request for the blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to have abundant mercy for us, to to have an inheritance for those who believe, that he has preserved it undefiled, that it is pure, that we have an inheritance waiting for you, that it was attained not by our works, but by Jesus Christ, that it is from the resurrection and the power that we have an incorruptible, undefiled inheritance it will not fade away. It does not get old over time. It will not get corroded. Um, it does not need to be polished up every now and then. It is a perfect inheritance that God has secured for all those who believe, who trust in him, who endure to the end. And we talked about that other component, not only that God has given us this wonderful inheritance, but he also has and will be and is at work in the inheritors that we too need to be kept by the power of God through faith. And this is where we want to engage in uh, and develop this by again looking at a point of doctrine. And the danger with studying a point of doctrine is that it can become very myopic. That is, it, it tends to ignore a lot of other points of doctrine that it intersects. And so uh, every point of doctrine has to be measured up against many other doctrines. That's why our central doctrines study on Sunday night is so important that we put these pieces all together in that consistency of studying through all of these doctrinal points to realize they are all correlated to one another. And it's difficult to correlate those if we're erratic in our study or in our application. And so to a degree, this study tonight, today, this morning, is a little out of place because I don't like to do it as as singular points of doctrine. I prefer it in the context of a consistent doctrinal. And really this is going to sound a lot like what we studied several weeks ago on Lord's Day evening when we talked about eternal security. And we need to address this Uh, not only because it is a precious doctrine of the Scripture, but also, like so many precious doctrines of the Scripture, it has been abused uh, by some. And so we want to clarify it. And I've tried to do that uh, as we come into those verses. And now, because it is so substantially a part of Peter's message, and to really uh, understanding the nature of what is the rest of this book and the epistle to come, we want to just set a groundwork. I will probably be revisiting this point of doctrine regularly. Uh, We talk about 
a doctrinal study called Eternal Security. And we have been infiltrated in our thinking with a lot of information that's, that's coming normally from a Calvinistic model of soteriology or the doctrine of, of salvation. So we have this strong logical argumentation that we have been confronted with even though all of us are very familiar with multiple scriptures that speak otherwise. Now when I say the Calvinistic model of eternal security which is in their acrostic of their five points is listed under the last one P, perseverance of the saints which is kind of an interesting terminology because they really don't believe that. It's not about the perseverance of the saints as we're going to see today. It's actually built upon their other doctrines that are error. And so we want to bring out the nature of the error behind it, which really t touches many other areas of doctrine, as I've said, uh, and then get a right understanding of what it is that is our inheritance and our being kept by the power of God. What is involved in that process? And like everything, it is a process. It is not an, an, a single act. And salvation itself is not a single act, but a process. We recognize that there needs to be a convicting. I need to respond to that convicting with godly sorrow. That that conviction then leads me to the truth of Jesus Christ. I need to not only be sorry and repent, but I need to trust in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people that are sorry for doing evil that never get beyond being sorry for doing evil. Doesn't mean they're saved. I'm sorry I did evil. That doesn't fix anything uh, because your evil still stands unless you have it covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that process of of salvation is one that can happen in a very short order. It can also happen over sometimes decades for someone to get a grasp of what Christ has done for them and the fullness of their salvation. And we have studied that in the past. We're going to continue studying that because this is a biblical position. And so we, we come to this concept of being kept by the power of God. What is it in the measure, we talked last few weeks about measuring the genuineness of our faith. Is our faith the real deal? And I, I've spoken to this in John, uh, we can, we, we, and we're going to go to one passage there today. Um, I'm going to look at a, several other passages. I want you to know that I'm not trying to pick out certain verses that agree with my position and ignore others. I'm very well familiar because that's what my the training was in college and seminary over the Calvinistic position. Uh, that's almost all you get to hear in seminary particularly, but even in college, that's almost all I was trained in. And so I am very aware of, their, of the verses that they employ. <laughs> uh, not necessarily honestly and not in light of their context. But I want us to understand the fullness of Scripture and bring it into our lives, into our, into our, not more than our doctrine, but into our actual living. So, we have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled that doesn't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. And that reserved in heaven means that it is there waiting for the inheritors. The you there are those who are followers of Jesus Christ. The you there is not just Israelites 
it is not just Israeli followers of Jesus Christ, which is what many believe Peter was written only to the dispersion, so it's only written to Jewish believers. No, it is an inheritance that is reserved, it is set aside for all those who will become followers of Jesus Christ. That is the you, it is a plural. And so it is for all of you who are kept by the power of God. That means we have put your trust in the power of God, but we also notice that there is through faith. And so we have these watchwords of the Reformation, and I'm going to challenge them. I'm going to challenge them, and I know this is something that even many of my Baptist brethren would, preachers would, would take issue with, but I have a real problem with their, uh, and they like Latin, this is the solas. How many of you know who the, what the solas are? Sola fide, what does that mean? Faith alone. Sola gracia, grace alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Well, these are all myopic. They are looking like this and they're ignoring everything else. It is not grace alone and faith alone because that would isolate one from the others. It is grace through faith. And thus you... The whole concept that you have all these solas, and they, they, they list them on your Facebook pages, oh, sola fide, so, and they list them all off. It's like, well, by the time you get through all of these onlys, you realize that they're all together. They, they don't operate independently of the others. That God's grace does not operate independent of your faith. And therefore, it is error to say it is sola gracia. It, it is not grace alone. It is grace alone through faith. And it's not faith alone. It is faith as a gift of God. And so, and that's grace, by the way. Gift of God is grace. And so we recognize all of these have relationship. It's not sola scriptura. Scripture isn't our only authority because now where's the Holy Spirit fit in? It is not sola scriptura. The scripture is our measure of faith. Yes, this is the word of God. But we also recognize that the Holy Spirit works through his word in our life. And so we've recognized that it is spirit and truth that we are to walk in. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's not sola scriptura, it's, and nor is it sola spiritu. It's not spirit only, it is the spirit and the scriptures. And thus we are led by the Spirit. Those who walk in the Spirit are led by the Spirit of God. Now, do I ignore God's Word? Does one isolate itself from the other? No, they are intertwined so closely that it is foolishness to say sola anything. Because all of our doctrines are so intertwined with one another, and this is what we found here in this verse, that we are kept by the power of God through faith. And we come to verse 9 of 1 Peter 1. It says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's really our text today. Receiving the end of your faith, the, perp, the, the, the destination, the point of your faith, the, the, the conclusion of your faith. This is what we all really want. We, re, we really want heaven. We, we want the inheritance. We want the undefiled, uncorruptible, reserved in heaven thing. I want that. And I would love, and even, and we're not alone, okay? The, the biblical writers wanted it too. I can't wait to get there. You know, Paul's like, oh, I wish I could go, but I have to stay here for your sake. <laughs> because ministry is that valuable. 
so I'll stay here for your sake. But I'd really prefer to be with Christ, which is far better than here. And so we share something with the biblical authors, and that is they wanted the inheritance too. We all want the end of our faith. And we can talk about that, and we can use these passages and understand that we have a reserved inheritance for all those who are kept by the power of God through faith. And it cannot be only the power of God, nor can it be only your faith. It is a working together of these. Because God will not override you. He will not force you into the kingdom of heaven, nor into this state of inheritance. It is a cooperative activity going on here. And so, what is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that the Calvinists teach? The Calvinists teach, of course, that uh, only those that God has chosen in eternity past will be saved. That's really all that Jesus died for. He didn't die for the world. Ignore those passages. World doesn't mean world. It means the elect. That, Jesus, that God the Father chose who would be saved and who would not be saved in eternity past before he created anything, that he then devised for his son to die only for those that he had chosen, and therefore only they can be saved. The only way you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and makes you a new person. You are born again first, so then you can have the faith to believe in Jesus Christ, because that faith is the result of regeneration. It's not a possession of all men. It is only a possession of of the elect, and, and then you must get saved once that happens. And so there's no way you can undo it, and there's no way you can avoid it. There's no way you can say no to God. That's the, the I in the tulip, the irresistible grace of God. You can't say no. And so God, who is capable of saving all men and provides a sacrifice sufficient for all men, chooses only to save some, and those that he chooses to save, he will save, regardless of whether they want to be saved or not. This is the doctrine of Calvinism, and it is complete error from top to bottom. When you come to the perseverance of the saints, what that means is, because God has done everything, every single thing, God has done unilaterally, that is, without your cooperation, your cooperation is not necessary. So everything is done unilaterally. Boom, 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 boom. God chose, God, God planned, God provided, God regenerated, God made you believe, and now the Holy Spirit is there to seal you. Because God does all of that, therefore it is impossible for you to be unsaved. Because you didn't do anything to get saved, so how you can do anything to unsave yourself? And this is their doctrine. And of course it makes sense. Logically it makes sense that if there is no dependency in this process of salvation for man's response, independent, free response, then certainly it makes perfect logical sense that everyone who is elect before the foundation of the earth will certainly inherit the inheritance. It will be kept. And that you have the faith because God put it in you and you're going to use it because you have no choice but to use it if you possess it. The problem is, is there a lot of scripture doesn't agree with and if we are honest, there's a lot of, of reality that we're ignoring. The reality is, is how Christians live. Because we don't walk by faith consistently. Which makes God kind of weird, because if God is making you make your choices, how is it that universally I find Christians sinning? 
It is a universal experience of all Christians that we recognize I am not walking a completely obedient walk. Okay, and there are several of you not walking an obedient walk today. Just in how we're worshiping. Okay? And so, well, what's going on? Well, blame God. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. This is, and we hear this kind of divine uh, blaming because everything that is is God's will. Everything that is equals God's will. And therefore, if this happens to me, God wanted it to happen to me. Well, that is not consistent with God's word. It makes it very clear that what God does, he takes what evil men does without approving it, and while they try to do evil to you, he comes in and he can manipulate their evil that he didn't cause, but he sees that they're doing and can work it to your good. For our good. And again, Joseph is the wonderful example. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You try to evil to me, God's going to switch it around and make it good. And so my trust is in the living God. Not that he caused this evil thing to happen, but rather that he can overcome the evil of men with regard to his people. Even to the point of death. They meant it for evil to kill Christians. They have done it since the days of Stephen. They've meant to do evil, and it's only come out as good even for those that are killed. It's for our good, because then we get our inheritance. <laughs> and so we find this doctrine, uh, while it makes sense in their system, because the system is so tainted, it is flawed itself. We are not preserved by the power, kept by the power of God, because our salvation is all God and none us. That is a Calvinist model. Our salvation is a process of us responding to God's provision and him granting more and we respond and he grants more and we respond. It's a relationship. And you think that would come out in the concept of an inheritance that if I'm going to give you an inheritance, it means that I'm treating you as my child and we have a relationship you're my son, here's the inheritance, I've kept it for you, and now it is intact, it's going to be transferred to you. It doesn't require my death to do that. Um, I can do that at any point, I can transfer, and that's evident in the prodigal son parable, that you can do that. And so, we have an, a relationship with God. And those that want to come in and say that certainly God has to initiate that. I agree, 100%. God is the initiator. We do not initiate that relationship. He has initiated that relationship. Did he initiate that relationship with me, particularly in eternity past? No. What he initiated was that he would provide a wondrous inheritance to everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, his son. So did he choose his son? Yes. From eternity past, he chose what he would provide you as an inheritance, how he would provide that inheritance, and that, was, that is very consistent in Scripture. You are chosen children, that everyone who believes will be a child of God, will have an equal inheritance. doesn't matter whether they're Jew, Greek, male, female, doesn't matter. We're equal inheritors. God decided that in eternity past. But that is not saying that 
Kirk Wesselink has to become a Christian. It's just that this is going to be offered to Kirk Wesselink, and then he may choose to either receive or reject this inheritance. And to each one, to all the world. That's why Christ died for the world. That he might offer the world that inheritance to all who believe. And so our faith is an integral part of our salvation. And so, for by grace you've been saved, Ephesians 2. Yes, grace is there. I do not deny that. What I deny is sola gracia. That is grace only because the verse doesn't end there. For by grace you are saved through faith. And so you have a faith investment in you, and all men do. Uh, I contend that all men are gifted with the faith. They all believe something. And they believe incredible things. I think some of these people have a lot more faith than me. I mean, they paint a rock with a few colors and set it on a pedestal and pray to it. That's a lot of faith, people, to pray to a rock that you colored. You know, I mean, that, that's three-year-old faith there, that this rock controls the weather and circumstances. But that's what a Hindu believes. They have, they have faith. Don't tell me they don't have faith. They do. It's misplaced, but they have it. So we have all given this gift of faith, and it's not something we generate ourselves, it's something we direct, and by the Holy Spirit's uh, work to bring it to our attention, and by the hearing of the gospel, faith comes by hearing, so that means you have to hear the gospel, and again, we ignore Romans 10, because we're all stuck in Romans 8 and 9, we never get to Romans 10, somehow, if you're a Calvinist model, and realize that how can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they're sent? That all talks about our responsibility. There is God's part and our part, and they must work together for our salvation. And so it is appropriate that Peter says here, the end of your faith is the salvation of your souls. It means I'm trusting in my, my own faith. My, do I have faith in faith? No. Okay, that's not what he's saying. My faith is in the power of God to keep me. But I must have that faith in him to be one of the inheritors. Let's look at several passages of Scripture. Let me just take you around about a little bit. Well, let, no, let me not do that yet. Let's not do that. So here's the accusation. Because you don't believe in a Calvinistic model of eternal security, the pastor doesn't thinks you can lose your salvation. That's usually the accusation leveled against you, that none of us are confident that we are going to heaven. And that could not be further from the truth. Because that simply isn't the case. And you guys have heard this from me time and time again. In fact, most of the New Testament is written with a goal. That goal is that you might know that you have eternal life. That is the objective of most of Scripture, is so that you know that you have eternal life. Now, if you had nothing to do with it, and it was forced upon you, and, and it was decided uh, age, before the ages began, before time existed, can you do something before time? Because then before doesn't mean anything. Anyway, um, how do you know? 
because you're not involved. How do I know I'm in a relationship with God if I'm not involved? And so we are called to this, and this is the whole purpose of the scriptures is that we might have a true sense of what it means to have eternal life. To have an inheritance guaranteed for us, waiting there for us, that is uh, reserved. We have reserved spot in heaven. There is a chair at the marriage supper of the Lamb that has my name on it. There is a book a book of life that has my name written there. But I do not want to pretend that that is irregardless of anything going on in my life. That somehow I can reject Jesus Christ, I can, I can blaspheme his name, I can, I can blaspheme against him, and that, that reservation holds. Because that's not the end of my faith. Please notice the term is the end of your faith. That is the future of your faith. Not only the goal and the aspiration, but over time it is the conclusion of your faith. And thus we have... Use the phrase that saving faith is enduring faith. That we are called upon to laugh, to endure. So, let's delve into some scriptures and talk about, do we really believe uh, in this, what, what kind of eternal security do we have? How do I know that I have eternal life? And you've heard all of this before from me, and that's okay. And most of my sermons are just stuff you already know that you're just being reminded of. Let me bring it to your memory. I invite you to turn to 1 John. Chapter 5. And of course, this is the verse that we all take new believers to, which is the biggest mistake you could ever make. You should take them to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Don't take them to 1 John 5.13. This is the end of the book. Take them to the front of the book and let them read the book first. Because this is what 1 John 5.13 says. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may continue, that you may go on believing in the name of the Son of God. Now you see the continue is italics, which means it's been added, because the sense of the verb is continuing action. We move from past action to continuing action. That you keep believing in the name of the Son of God. But I want you to notice the first two words of this verse are these things. What things? The things he has written in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, 1 through 12, that are the conditions of this that these I have read to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. How do I know I have eternal life? Not because of some logical argumentation about God uh, electing you in eternity past and regenerating you and providing you with faith. No, not all that. In fact, John doesn't list any of that in his book. The conditions of this surety, the conditions of being kept that we know that we have eternal life, the conditions listed here are very interesting. Um, it says that um, 
if we hate our brother, we are not his. I have to love my brother? Yeah, that's a condition of knowing you have eternal life. Hmm. I have to be obedient to God's word. And that we can't wait to obey God. It says that his commandments are not grievous to us. That we love God, that we love his word. Go through 1 John 1, 2, 3, 4, chapter 5, 1 through 12. Talk about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. These are the things that John wrote so that you may know that you have eternal life. And if these things aren't real in your life, shame on anyone that says, well, you prayed a sinner's prayer, you got baptized, you're on your way to heaven, you have a reserved seat there that cannot be taken away. Shame on them. Because John would never say that. He says, no, if, if, if you confess your sins, if, go through the ifs, and much like the Gospel of John, we have this conditionality that God expects a response. He has initiated, he has provided for it, and it is sufficient, there's no doubt. But you must respond by faith. The end of your faith is the salvation of your souls. Not faith in faith, not faith in yourself, not faith in your religious activity, faith in the power of God and his provision through Jesus Christ and the resurrection. But let there be no mistake, your faith needs to be a living faith. Not a declaration with your mouth, that's called a profession, but a living faith. Evident in all you do. And that's what John rehearses. You can't say you love God and hate your brethren. You're a liar. The truth isn't in you. You can't sit there and say, I love God and walk in disobedience. You're a liar. Let's go to Philippians. We've been there several times over the last few weeks. I want to keep going back there. The correlation between 1 Peter and Philippians is so strong. And that's why we're going to keep doing that. But let's go to Philippians Chapter 2, we could go into chapter 1. Let's look at chapter 1 because... So we have Philippians 1, and this is the verse we all love, is verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. So we love that, that what God has begun in us, he will complete in us. Well, that sounds like the Calvinistic model. What God begins, he will finish it. What can we do to interfere? So therefore, I have nothing to fear. God, if, if it doesn't get completed, that's on God, not on me. Because he said he, what he starts, he finishes it. What was the confidence that Paul had that the Philippian believers uh, were going to have it finished in them what was begun in them? Because he knew it was begun well and truly. He says, my confidence is that you all are partakers with me of grace. But let's go over to chapter 2. We all like that verse. We quote it. Look at verse 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Oh, that we would understand that, yes, God is working in us. That's, that's the last phrase. God is working his pleasure. He's going to complete that which he has begun, uh, assuming that we have allowed him to begin. But look at our part. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We are in the process. We are, we are companions in this being kept by the power of God through faith that we have a responsibility in this relationship. We are not just sitting there, you know, sitting on the couch, uninvolved in the running of the household and just, you know, being fed intravenously and, and just sitting there. You know, and someone else measuring the I.O. When that happens, those are complete invalids. We put them in hospitals and places like that. They're in a vegetable state. There are no Christian vegetables. You should be active and engaged in this process. Yes, God does his work. He will always complete his work. What does that mean? He's faithful. Are you? Am I? He's faithful. He'll finish his part. He'll do, and that's what Peter's been saying. You have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. It is there for all who are faithful. Because God is faithful. You, he will keep you by his power if you trust in him through faith. God will always hold up his end of the deal, of the covenant, of the load. He will always do that. But here Paul makes it very clear that you have a responsibility. You have to do something. This is work out your own salvation. God is at work. Are you at work? Where your faith works. Your faith should be at work. Remember, faith is substantial. Faith is evidential. It can be seen. It can be touched. It can be uh, heard. It can be, it's evidence. You can put it forth in court. Faith is not a feeling inside. It's not walking around saying, I love Jesus. Faith is at work. It is evident. I can look at your acts. I can look at your behavior. I can look at your attitude. I can look at your face. I know if you're a faith. I can look at your social media and grasp your faith pretty quickly. This is the balance. Let's go to Galatians. I'm going to pick on a few verses here. You might say, Pastor, you're ignoring the other passages. No, I'm not. I know that Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I put them in my Father's hand. No one is able to take them out of my Father's hand. Uh, no one is able, able to take them out of my hand. Um, and Yes, I know that passage in John 10. We have studied it. The question is, are you a sheep? Is he your owner? Because the context of that is, my sheep, what? Hear my voice. Do you hear that? That's a relationship. Okay? When I'm in that nursery and I got your little rugrats in there, and I say, stop, they hear my voice. I can tell because they hesitate. Now, are they going to listen, or are they going to ignore it? Now, all of you who are parents have the same situation. You don't even have to be a parent. All you do is work on a nursery. And you realize they have to either heed your voice, they've heard it, but are they going to heed it, my sheep? Not just hear in terms of, oh, that's Jesus talking. Uh, I'm not going to listen to him today. No, they hear it. They respond rightly. They follow the shepherd. My sheep hear my... That's the context. That's the if 
of the promise that if you're in my Father's hand. All right? So I'm not ignoring those passages. I'm just going into some other ones that you don't hear much about. Galatians chapter 4. You there? I've given you plenty of time to find that. And I wrote down the wrong verse. I hate when that happens. Oh, there it is. I'm just one verse off. Okay. Galatians chapter 4, verse 11. This is a body of believers that, and I could read a lot of verses out of Galatians, that Paul says, I, I appreciate the gospel, you received the gospel, somebody else came in and tainted it. They taught you something different. They taught you that not only did you need to have faith in Jesus Christ, you also had to keep the law by your own works. And of course, we have a law of love that transcends the Jewish law. In verse 11, it says, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored in vain. What does that sound like to you? He says, Brother, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first, and my trial was which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as the angel of God, even as Jesus, Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labored in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Do you see the nature of this? They had received the gospel. They tasted the heavenly things. That's the phraseology of Hebrews. You have tasted the heavenly gift. You have, you have, you have seen the work of the Holy Spirit. And now you're getting ready to abandon it by adding to Jesus Christ the works of the flesh that can in no way please God. And hence, by doing so, you are putting in jeopardy, true jeopardy, that reserved inheritance. You see, being kept by the power of God through faith is an ongoing activity. And here, the, the entire Galatian church was in jeopardy. And Paul is genuinely afraid for them. He communicates it multiple times. It's not hyperbole. He is genuinely concerned for them that they are going to abandon true faith and hence lose their inheritance. Making his labor worthless. He wants Christ formed in them. This is our part, that Christ be formed in us. The provision is there, but we need to lay hold of it by faith. Let's look at 1 Timothy as well. If you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul speaking to a young pastor. And we could go again into a lot of scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. I want you to notice his expectation is that 
some will depart from the faith through false teaching that they will embrace, they will depart from the faith, which means that they were in the faith and then chose out of it. Because you see, while God is faithful in his end, men are not always faithful at their end. And look at this. They, I mean, this is not just, oh, he, he's, a, he's a backslidden Christian. I hear that phrase a lot. He's just a backslidden Christian. Well, let's be honest in our measurement here. You have departed from the faith. You're listening to evil spirits and demons. That doesn't sound like a backslidden Christian who's just confused. They're speaking lies. They're being hypocrites. They are having their conscience seared with a hot iron. The other time that Paul uses that is in Romans when he talks about those that God gives over that cannot be saved. And this correlates with what it says in Hebrews that if you've tasted of that and turn away, it is impossible for you to come to repentance again. Maybe I should be working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. Not just fear of God, but a trembling over the inconsistent nature of human faith in God. That I have to have the end of my faith is the salvation of my soul. I have to endure. He who endures to the end will be saved. This is the consistent message throughout God's word. And if we simply tell people, you pray this little prayer, here's a little booklet, we're going to dunk you in this tank of water, and now you are secure forever in heaven, we do a great injustice. I would rather each one of you walk out of here scratching your head saying, I want to make sure I'm saved. Than to have any one of you walk out of here, I can live however I want because I'm going to heaven no matter. Because that's the two possibilities here on our doctrinal point of eternal security. And I would prefer that you say, I don't know what about in my past, but I want to set today and every day in my life that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to love him. I'm going to love his word. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to, and I want that to be a point of, of <laughs> to be established daily in my life. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ to the end. It will take that to endure. Much like my relationship with my wife has to be reaffirmed on a regular basis. I don't know about you, but my wife is very demanding. She expects me to tell her I love her, and she expects me to give her kisses. She expects me to take care of her pretty much every day. It goes on and on and on and on, day after day after day. Will she ever get tired of being kissed? No. Because that's what a relationship is. I would not want you to leave here thinking that you can ignore God the rest of your life and you have a place reserved in heaven because you prayed a little prayer and some preacher threw you under some water and read you a verse. Be horrible. Oh, that we understand the relationship that we have with God. But in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. They will give heed to lies. Hebrews 6, of course, is a very important 
And really, the whole book of Hebrews is ignored by most of those and, and abused by most of those who hold to a Calvinistic model of eternal security. And we can read most all of Hebrews 6. Let's just start in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. The doctrine of baptism, laying of hands, resurrection of the dead, of of eternal judgment, this we'll do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away. What? If they have fallen away, to renew them again repentance is impossible. Because it would require Christ to be crucified again and puts him to open shame. This is a frightening passage of Scripture, and there's a lot of them in Hebrews like that. Oh, that we take seriously the necessity of being, of, of the end of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Oh, that we take that seriously. It's not just a signpost in my history. It is a reality in my present, and it must be a reality in every day that it may be enduring to that day of receiving the inheritance. Through faith in the power of God, it's not in my own determined will. It is every day I'm trusting God to help me. Lord, you've said every time there's a temptation, you'll provide me a way of escape. I'm, I'm Help me to recognize that escape route and to quickly take it without argument, without rationalizing it. He's going to be faithful in his part. I have to be faithful in my part. He provides me an escape route. I have to take it. If the sign says, escape above it, I need to go that way. If I ignore it, God didn't let me down. He didn't will for me to sin. I chose to yield to temptation. And I bear the responsibility and the judgment for that. To fall away, what is involved in this process? I want to take you to Matthew as we close. One of Christ's first parables. I'll get there. Regarding the sower and the soil and the seeds. A parable I hope you know. Uh, did I tell you a chapter? I'm sorry, 13. Uh, I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 13. Verses 1 through 9 is the parable. I don't want to read the parable because we're going to read the explanation of the parable, lest you think I'm interpreting it wrong. I don't have to interpret this parable because Jesus did it for us. It's one of the few, there's only a couple that he interpreted for the disciples and kind of lay the groundwork for them to be able to interpret it themselves. It says, um, verse 18, if you jump down to verse 18, it says, Therefore, I hear the parable of the sower. This is Jesus speaking. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart, this is he who received the seed by the wayside. We get that. 
These are people that never got saved, didn't want to hear about it, la, la, they put their fingers in their ears, didn't want to, rejected it outright, said, I have nothing to do with that. They blaspheme and they don't, they don't want, they resist the, the convicting of the Holy Spirit in their life. We get that one. Now it gets more complicated. Verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. As quickly as he accepted it, he loses it. But notice the condition. His condition isn't that God is unfaithful to him. His condition isn't that, that the owner of the field, that the sower, has, has not given him a good enough gospel message. It's not because it wasn't emotion. He has no root in himself. So what does that tell you? If you want to endure, it's not God's side that's going to prevent that from happening. It is something inside of you that is going to keep that from happening. Do you have the root of the gospel in you, in yourself? Not that I'm trusting in myself. Do I have the root of the word of God in me that defines who I am? Is your faith the defining attribute of your life? I believe in God. I trust in him every day. This is who I am. This is not what I do on Sunday. This is not one part of me. This is me. This defines me. And when that defines you, oh, let the sun burn as hot as it wants, and it will only purify me because my roots run deep and strong, and they have tapped into something that is beyond this world's understanding. It is the Word of God. And when my roots run deep in me, how does that happen? Well, that's why we're here. <laughs> I'm trying to grow your roots deep and wide. I want them deep, I want them wide, so that you can tap into truth and, and refreshment that regardless of how wicked and nasty the world gets, you can walk around and say, I am satisfied because I have a root that's tapped in to a well that won't run dry. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. This is the difference between those who endure and those that do not. Please notice, they endured for a little while until they were tested. That's why the testing of your faith demonstrates its genuineness. Until it's tested, you're not sure. And until your faith costs you something, I'm not ready to tell you you have genuine faith. If that startles you a little bit, good. Does that mean you have to go out there and make yourself get tested? No, wait, it'll come. But while you're waiting, grow that root in yourself by growing it into God's word. Not in me, not in yourself. Grow that root down into the truth of God's word that you might endure. And that individual... I fear, is deceived because they'll endure a little while. They're full of joy. But as soon as hardship comes, they're gone as fast as they came 
immediately they just dry up, wither away, and they're lost. I don't want any of us to have a stony heart. We need to have hearts of flesh that, that, can, that can be penetrated. And the prophet says, break up your fallow ground. <laughs> oh, that we, we, can, we, we can do that. We can break up fallow ground, hard-packed, rocky soil, it, but, it, but it's hard. How do you break up rocky soil? Well, you take something harder than rock and you drive it through it. You get that steel plow and you go out there and you start plowing. You get well, you guys are rototiller and you go out there and rototill those steel tines. <laughs> now, Mrs. Fry had some fallow ground out there, and I took a rototiller and it just bounced. Boom, 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 boom. You know what that means? Yeah, bring in bigger guns. You know, backhoe <laughs> to break it up. Some of us need a backhoe to break up our fallow ground of our heart. Because a rocky heart with this kind of soil, you, you can deceive yourself into thinking you're on your way to heaven. You've got a place reserved, and, but your faith is untested, and therefore it is unsure, and you can start working on that before it's tested. But I believe we are coming into a time when our faith will be tested like no other time, certainly in this generation, and certainly in this land, in the entirety of the history of of this country. Your faith is about to be tested. It really has already begun. Will you stand? Well, you're going to need a root and believing in something other than the Constitution of the United States to survive. You're going to need a root that believes in something other than the community of saints. You're going to need a root in your life. And if you need to break up the, your soils, your heart's soil a little bit to let that root grow deeper, the evidence of it is you'll be more obedient. You'll love the brethren more and more. You won't want to abandon. You won't want to give up any opportunity being God's word. You will lay hold of everything. You'll hunger and thirst after righteousness. You'll hunger and thirst after the truth. Uh, this will begin to define you. This is what we do. This is why we are here. It's because I preach these things that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't want you to leave here fooled into thinking you have eternal life. I want you to have a root in the wonderful subterranean pool of God's word and spirit that will never run dry. And as scorching hot as the desert above gets, you can stand fast in the midst of it. I want the end of your faith be the salvation of your souls. That's why we meet here. That's why we encourage one another. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we carry one another's burdens. That's why we preach and teach one another. That's why we do hard things like rebuke each other when there's sin in our lives. Not because we are hateful and mean, but because we want the end of your faith to be the salvation of your souls. Are we out there trying to begin faith in people's lives? Yes, of course. In here, we're worried about the end of your faith. That it might endure. That your soul might be saved. Let's pray.